Well, that was extended family time we had with announcements and all of that. Uh, so let's uh, get our juices flowing. I want you to think for a minute about um, something you want. Not, you know, something good, right? I mean, something relatively godly and important. Something you want. Think about that for a second. Everybody got something? A wife. A wife? Dude, you're getting married in like three weeks. Just chill. Just chill. Everybody beside Narayan have something? All right, turn to the person next to you and say, yeah, it'll probably happen. With great faith. It'll probably happen. There, do you feel that surge? You feel that surge of faith? A good probably faith? Is that good? Is that a good, is that a good way to do faith? No? All right, let me ask you a, a sort of a tweak question. What can you be sure of in life in terms of your expectations? What can you be sure of? Go, somebody tell me. What can you be sure of? A wife. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Death and taxes. Somebody had to say it. Yeah, somebody had to say it. Somebody had to say it. Uh, what else? What can you be sure of? Change. Change. <laughs> That's good. That's good. What can you be sure of? Expectations of life. What? You're not in control? Lack of control. That's what you can be sure of. Yeah. God's goodness. Yeah. And within that realm, what can you be sure of? He will be faithful. How? How will he be good? What can you be sure of? He'll never leave you. It's all good statements. One more. What can you be sure of? You'll hear his voice uh, if you listen, at least. Sometimes even if you don't, uh, you'll hear uh, God's voice. So we're in this sermon series uh, called How to Help the Devil, uh, which is right in my wheelhouse, uh, something I feel like I'm, I'm really good at. I make a great devil. Unfortunately, I only make a so-so Christian, uh, but I try hard. Uh, the idea of the sermon series is that if we understand how the devil does things, then we'll be better able to resist the traps that he lays for us in life. So we're looking at some of his tricks and particularly the way that he uses virtues. Satan's number one trick is to get us to do destructive things that we think are virtuous things. That's, that's basically his methodology. Uh, Paul puts it this way, Satan masquerades as an angel of light, right? He doesn't come across as this big, scary, dark thing. He comes across as an angel of light, something that looks appealing to our righteousness uh, in effect. And usually the way he implements this trick is that he gets us to focus on one virtue in a way that ignores all of the other virtues. So that in focusing on one virtue, we think we're being really virtuous, but in ignoring the others, we're actually being negligent and narrow. And that's how he gets us. I think of the word integrity. We've talked about that. The word integrity uh, means, well, integrated, right? And what does integrated mean? It means everything connected together. And that's really what a person of integrity is, a person that connects all the virtues together into themselves. 
what's the opposite of integration? Well, disintegration. And so a ruined person is disintegrated, right? Not bringing all the virtues together, but typically just bringing one or two, thinking that they're a good person, but kind of losing out on all the other fronts. Everybody following me? Go ahead and clap once really loud. All right. Um, you can imagine a disintegrated uh, approach to diet. We've talked about this analogy. Imagine eating only one healthy thing. You know, spinach is really, really healthy. And if you wanted to improve your diet, you could eat spinach. But what if you only ate spinach in life? One, boring. Two, you'd eventually die. Because while you can go a long way on spinach, right, eventually it's going to fail you because it doesn't integrate all of the nutrients that you need to, to be healthy. Uh, we've talked about how you can inappropriately focus on one virtue in the neglect of other. Let, let's say that you focused on peacemaking, peacemaking, you know, but you turn that into getting along with unrighteousness or unrighteous people or unrighteous causes. Well, you'd be a peacemaker, but you'd be making peace with the devil, in effect. And you don't want to do that because that just lets the devil run amok. And, uh, so you have to be peaceful and righteous, if you want to bring health to this world and health to your life. All right, you got it? Today we're going to take a look at how to help the devil through your faith. How does the devil use faith against you? We've talked about how the devil uses identity against you and peace against you and love against you. How does the devil use faith against you? And the answer is that, well, faith is really great, but it can be disordered. It can be disordered faith, disorderly faith. Uh, so the, uh, the conceit of this sermon series is that now I'm going to speak to you as a devil coach. I'm going to coach you in how to be a really good devil. So I'm going to take off my sane Christian hat. And I'm going to put on my insane devil hat from here on out. This is confusing for people because I'm such a good devil. I'm so convincing that it freaks you out. Are you freaked out by this sermon series so far? Yeah. When I say I'd be a good devil, <laughs> it's like... It's not an empty boast. I, I feel like I can really do it. Uh, so I'm going to coach you, junior devils, my young devilish protégés, just look at one another and go, <laughs> all right, so I'm going to coach you in how to use faith against Christians. Are you, are you ready? I want you, to, I want you to be good at this. This is a good one because faith is a great weapon for devils because every Christian has to use faith, right? So if we can contaminate faith, it works out really, really well for us throughout uh, Christendom. Faith is a great weapon for us devils because Satan does not want people to disbelieve in God. That is not Satan's goal. He doesn't want a bunch of atheists in the world. He doesn't want you to disbelieve in God. Satan wants you to be angry at God. That is the satanic attitude. Doubt, not the satanic attitude. Why? Because if you doubt God, well, you might search. You might question. You might actually be open. But if you're angry at God, then even if you think he exists, you'll turn your back on him. You'll be ruinous. You'll be defiant. You'll be destructive. You'll be cold. And that can kind of spread on the earth. So Satan does not want a bunch of unbelievers. Satan wants a bunch of angry rejectors. You have to understand that about what we do as devils. We just want people to be angry at God. And what's the key to making people get angry at God? Well, the key 
is to make them feel disappointed. Disappointed. This you might recognize is, is Satan's biography, right? Because he was some high muckety-muck angel, and in some fashion he got disenchanted with the Lord. Does Satan know God exists? Sure he does. But he's angry at God. He's disrespectful toward God. And that's what we want to do uh, with all of these people. Doubt, not the problem. Anger, disappointment, bitterness. That's the problem, and that's where we're headed. Everybody got it? Go like this, really loud. Yes. All right. I love it. Um, <clears throat> anger and disappointment can lead to a disordered faith, can use people to twist their faith in God into a disorderly way. Uh, and disordered faith can lead to disappointment in this manner. The definition of disorderly faith is when we can get people to trust in outcomes more than they trust in God. Right? To be sure of outcome X, to be sure you're going to get married more than you're sure that God is going to be faithful. I'm pretty sure you're going to get married. But she doesn't know you like I do, right? You asked for it. He totally asked for it. So when we can get Christians to say things like it has to happen, you know, it must happen, or it mustn't happen, it can't happen. Uh, therefore, because it has to happen, God must comply. Because it can't happen, God wouldn't dare do that to me in my life. When we can get Christians to start kind of moving in those statements, then we've got them. Then their faith will become disorderly, and that's going to eventually lead to disappointment one way or another. And then when it leads to disappointment, we jump on it. And we trick them into believing that the failed outcome should lead to anger at God rather than a correction in their understanding. Easy, easy peasy, easy peasy. And almost every Christian in the world has had this experience in, in some way. They either mature through it or they cave. The great thing about Christians, the, the way that they help us, devils, in this, is that the more mature you are as a Christian, the more you put your heart into the things that you believe, right? The more powerful your faith is, the more you live on faith and nothing else, the more daring you are in your actions, the more daring you are in your expectations. I mean, the stronger the Christian, the more faith and expectation they live by, right? Christians put their heart not just into faith in God, but they put their heart into faith pursuits. They put their heart into pursuing healing for the sick person. I have it uh, on, on, uh, on good report that there are some people even locally that are willing to go all the way to Ecuador to try to heal people. Right? They're putting their heart, they're putting their resources, they're putting their family into it, you know, risking to go. Right? So, because there's so much heart and risk in that, it's just rife with disappointment potential. Because they're really far out on the edge. Right? It's a long way for them to fall. So Christians help us in this, and we devils can use that if we're really, really smart. We devils want people to believe really passionately. We actually want that, but rigidly, 
compassionately but rigid. We want it to be really heartful but brittle, right? At least when it comes to the pursuits of faith, to the objects of faith. And there's an imbalance in that. There's a disorder in that. Um, Here's a story that I dearly love. Indeed, all devils dearly love it. It's the story of how Judas betrayed Jesus. Yeah, come on, everybody. Snaps. Judas. Uh, Sort of a prototype uh, story for us, and people misunderstand, I think, what happened to to Judas. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 26, uh, right at the beginning. Uh, This is the story of Judas uh, betraying Jesus, how he kind of made the decision, but uh, you'll see it's not just a story about, about Judas. Here, keep track of him in this story, though, and be mindful of how Matthew framed it. Uh, so what's happening here in this story is that it's getting toward uh, uh, the last week of Jesus' life on earth. Uh, so it was a very pressure-packed time for us devils. Uh, and, uh, and Jesus is uh, hanging out uh, uh, around Jerusalem, uh, and, uh, and we're trying to get a hold of him, uh, our devilish forces uh, in the city. And Jesus continued to teach people, gave some of his most famous parables and teachings right here at the bitter end. And when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So Jesus, very frank, very upfront with his followers and said, all right, you've been following me, some of you, for three and a half, four years, and just so you know, I'm going to die now. I'm going to be tortured to death by the Romans. Pretty clear about it, and it wasn't the first time that he had said this. Then the chief priests and elders of the people ascended in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. So the chief priests wanted to put Jesus to death to kind of keep peace in Jerusalem, we're told in the Gospel of John. They were afraid that he was raising a lot of fervor and that uh, he would be a disappointment. So they just wanted to short-circuit the process. So they're plotting against him. Then there's a shift again in the story. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, Simon the ex-leper, clearly. This is a guy that Jesus had healed, otherwise the crowd would not be hanging around with him. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Uh, We are told a lot about this woman in the gospel stories. An alabaster jar full of perfume was probably worth uh, fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars in today's money. So well over a year's worth of salary, and it would have been a dowry. And she's just sacrificing it all by pouring it on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Is that a bad attitude? Is that a devilish attitude? If somebody came in here with a stack of $60,000, lit it on fire and waved it to the glory of God, what would you think? I think, oh, it's like, yeah, it's like, ah, what a worshipful person. That's what you'd think. 
that's, that, that's what was going down. And these were guys that were really dedicated to justice. They were really dedicated to social justice. They were really dedicated to the poor. Uh, and so they were indignant. Said, wow, we should have sold that and actually, you know, fed some people. Virtue. Virtue. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. Well, that's kind of self-centered. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Indeed, he had just told them he was going to be killed. I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. It turned out to be an accurate statement. Switch gears slightly again. Then, one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot. Went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. That's how that went down. Have you guys realized what pushed Jesus, Judas over the edge? What pushed Judas over the edge was, was this worship, was this wasteful sacrifice that this woman did. And that was just, that was the straw that broke the camel's back right there. It's like we could have used that money for good. That was the attitude that drove Judas to the trail. We could have used that money for good. And he was like, man, heck with that. That's it. He's like, he's going to go get himself killed, and he's wasting all of our funds. We've been living like homeless people for three and a half years. Like, he evidently doesn't want any good to happen to this country. I've risked everything. I've risked my own life to follow him. I've done miracles. Because Judas participated in all of the miracle ministry that Jesus was doing. Right? He risked his life and did miracles daily. lived like a beggar. And Jesus was like willy-nilly with the money. And it's like, all right, now I'm going to go get killed. What? Disappointment crushing disappointment, and we got him. We got, oh yeah, he had weaknesses all along, like everybody does, but, but we got him. It was justifiable disappointment that twisted Judas to our ends. Was a great model for us to ruin lots of people who want good things, justifiable things, and when they don't get them, when they're confused, we come in and we twist them to an attitude of disappointment and bitterness, and then we ruin them. Christ's death was a great twist in the story because nobody saw that coming. They thought he was going to be a Messiah that would establish justice in society, right? So that was a huge disappointment. Uh, it played havoc with the rest of the disciples later in the week. Judas had to have... A helpful Messiah, right? Judas had to have a justice Messiah. Judas had to have a comforting God. That's what he wanted. He had put everything into this. He had put his whole heart into this. He was risking his life for this. All of his resources went into this. Doggone it. Was it too much for God just to give him a little payoff? Well, yeah, actually. It didn't fit in God's uh, plan. 
Um, everybody wanted a different sort of Messiah than the one they got for the sake of, not arrogance, but for the sake of compassion for their country, maybe. You know, something good like that. It was justifiable. So Judas, even though he had been faithful and done plenty of miracles along the way, he sank into the waves, choosing to take the money either for his own purposes or to fund uh, the uprising against the Romans or something, however he justified it in his own mind. Judas didn't exactly make a deal with the devil, right? He just chose a certain set of virtues over the plan of God. You understand how we do this? We don't tempt them to make a deal with the devil, right? We tempt them to just embrace a certain set of virtues over and against the plan of God. So devilish. Can I get a mwahaha? Oh, that just sucked. One, two, three. You get an A. Um, Judas needed a God who made sense to him, a Lord who made sense to him. And we talked earlier about how perilous that is. Because if God makes sense to you, then he's no God worth following. Because if he's not smarter than you, then you've got no business following him. Right? And if he's much smarter than you, then he'll do things you can't understand. Right? By definition. So a God that makes sense to you is not a God worth following. And Judas forgot that, as most people do. So what's the devilish trick? What exactly is our technique? Well, we want to get people really into their pursuits, really passionate about it. We, need, we want people to need something from God. We really want people to need something from God. It can be most anything. It can be most anything. And then when it doesn't happen, we convince them that it was their faith in God that failed them rather than their faith in whatever thing they wanted. And it's really easy, because when a person is disappointed, they're so emotional, you know, and nothing is more chaotic than uh, uh, emotions. Um, that's it, that's the lesson, you got it? You know how to do this? When something goes wrong in people's life, then we just say, well, that's what you get for following Jesus. That's what you get for trusting God that way. You don't seem as excited as I am about this. Is it because you've all been disappointed by God at some point? And you felt a little twisting in your heart? Yes. Is that guilt in you? Because if it's guilt, I can turn it into shame. I'm a good devil that way. I can make you feel inferior. Yeah, you get the point. With God, here, here's the reality. With God, sometimes the sea parts. But sometimes you have to walk on the water. Other times you have to build an ark. It depends. Depends on the plan, right? And uh, we just want to obscure that for Christians, right? We want them to think that they know the plan better than God uh, does. We want faith to be very powerful, but very narrow. That's all we have to do. That's all we have to do, devils. When people choose faith, we just push them a little farther 
Because faith makes them feel vulnerable, we want to make them believe they actually have a guarantee, which makes them feel secure. Then we got them. That's all there is to it. Really simple. Really simple. God was really ruthless and brutal about ordered faith in Scripture. A famous story that uh, even us devils will know is the story of Abraham, the father of faith. Hate that guy. Um, You know, Abraham was very old. He didn't have any descendants, and God gave him a promise and said, I will give you descendants. You're going to have a son. Uh, but the timing did not work out. And year after year went by, so Abraham and Sarah hatched this plan. Uh, Sarah couldn't conceive kids, so she gave uh, Abraham uh, another woman. Uh, And he had a kid through that woman. That kid, Ishmael. Well, it was not a happy story, was it? Because that was not how God wanted to do it. So they became convicted, and they decided to wait and try again. Eventually, Sarah had a son, um, Isaac. And then what did God do? He said to Abraham, well, now you have to sacrifice Isaac. You have to kill him. You remember that story? That's a creepy story. And so Abraham takes Isaac out, goes up to the mountain, probably the same mountain on which Jesus was sacrificed, puts him on the altar, is about ready to kill him, and then the angel comes and stops him, and Isaac survives, but God needed Abraham to be willing to sacrifice the object of his faith in order to have an ordered faith. And that's the path to greatness. You'll know if you've given something to God if he takes it away. That's how you'll know. And all of the great ones master that test. Let's make sure nobody masters that test. Right? And we just come sweeping in with disappointment and protest and anger and twistedness and bitterness. Thus ends the lesson today. Everybody give yourselves a hand. I can see the devilish gleam in your eyes. I think you know how to do this. So we're ready to go out there and make some faith victims? Faith victims? You like that? All right. Let me put back on my Christian coach hat for just a second. The thing about mature Christians, the thing about blue water Christians, right? Christians that are willing to go way out into the deep, far water with God, is that we need operational faith and outcomes. Like uh, if, if the Chans go to Ecuador and you know, they don't have a, a medicinal answer for somebody, I know what they're going to do. They're going to try to heal the person supernaturally, right? Now, do you need faith to do that? Well, of course you do, you know? Uh, you need faith in pursuit of an object, you know, in pursuit of a miracle of healing. Or you need faith in pursuit of some uh, provision in your life. You need faith for reconciliation in your life. You need faith to prophesy to strangers. You need faith to preach the word, right? Like we need faith for our operational pursuits. Like we can't just oh, I'm going to do this, and you know, whatever happens, it's cool. That's really not a super constructive attitude. Uh, And that's not the attitude that we see in in Scripture. We need outrageous faith, but with humility. We have to integrate other virtues into it. It has to be integrated faith. It can't be faith and faith alone. That would be disorderly. Got it? Um, And the best word... I know for doing this well, because I've, 
man, I have, I've gone after this one. You know, I've lived by faith. I've been pounded by faith, right? You know my story. I am always trying. Always. I can say that as a boast. <laughs> I'm not always succeeding, <laughs> but I'm always trying. Uh, and I know a lot of you are as well. The best word I know to keep faith ordered is the word probably. It's the word probably, which I know is a bit counterintuitive. It sounds funny. Well, that doesn't sound very faith-filled. Really? Imagine some incredibly sick, deathly sick person comes up to you and says, I need a miracle. Can you heal me? And you say, probably. <laughs> right? You feel, you feel the strange faith in that, don't you? You're not like saying, yes, for I am God's anointed and I know all things and you will for sure be like, no, that doesn't feel very godly. But if you're like, oh, yeah, you have a, a terminal disease, you can probably do that with Jesus. Right? It's not non-Christian. It's actually really healthy. Um, probably is a very Christian attitude. It's confident, but humble. The word probably is an amazing word. Amazing. That kind of probably has a real supernatural, otherworldly quality to it. You know? Is it going to work out? Probably. <laughs> probably. And if it doesn't, eh. We'll laugh about it in heaven. <laughs> you know? You got it? Deceptively Christian word, uh, probably. All right, so I just want to give you a moment to reflect on where you are. We've gone late, so we have to split and go get your kids from Keiki uh, Church before second service comes in. But is there something in life that you're holding on to with white knuckles? Instead, you want to hold on to it with probably, uh, with a good uh, godly grip, a confident grip, not a fearful grip. A confident grip and not a fearful grip. Have you been disappointed by something or a lot of some things? And Satan is using it to make you angry and defiant instead of bold and healthy. I'll give you 30 seconds to listen to the Spirit. Faith is a heck of a thing, brothers and sisters. And I just want to encourage you to not let Satan use your faith life to ruin you. Don't let him foist a non-integrated faith on you. Faith plus humility. Faith plus learning. Faith plus submission. Faith plus joy, 
but never faith for the sake of faith. Can I have the prayer ministry team come forward, please? Come on up here. A lot of these guys also on the solo team, on the Sozo team, they're pretty uh, able to hear from the Lord for you. Um, if you want to come up uh, for practical need for healing in your body, it'll probably work. If you want to come up for some prophetic direction in your life, you probably get it. If you want to come up for a breakthrough of provision in your life, you know, uh, some material provision, pretty sure you're going to get that as well. Uh, just let these guys lay a hand on your shoulder, uh, agree with them in the work of the Holy Spirit and faith, and we get a lot of great stories that way. You would be foolish to leave the building without giving the Lord a shot at doing something supernatural and helpful for you. Can we stand for dismissal, please? Come up forward now if you need prayer. Father God, I pray uh, for the perfection of your agenda in each of our lives. I pray that we'd all be changed a little bit. I pray that we'd be filled with faith a bit more. Make us bold and make us humble. Make us confident and make us perceptive. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody says, Amen. go influence somebody for good. I'll see you next week at 9 a.m.